morning, everybody. It's good to be able to share with you again today. <clears throat> and I trust that the Lord will just speak to us through what he's laid upon my heart. <clears throat> it's absolutely true that me personally, I love and always have done the Old Testament. I love the history in it, the poetry, the stories, the characters that are in there and the prophets and their teaching. And I think it's true to say that for me, for a very, very long time, I regarded the Old Testament and the New Testament as two completely separate entities. And I always acknowledged and admitted that the New Testament was fulfilled with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. All the prophecies and the teaching from the Old Testament were fulfilled through him. And that we were then living under a new law, a law that was written in our hearts, not on tablets of stone. But for me, it started and ended there. And it took me a long, long time to see how the teaching of the New Testament has its roots in the Old Testament, how the one is grounded so much in the other. And it's almost like a mirroring. And the teaching that we get in the New Testament, we find back written hundreds and hundreds of years before. And today, I want to look at a particular theme from the New Testament, but I want to take it back to the Old Testament and look at it through a character there and see how his life spanned out. Last week, Simon asked a very straightforward question that was quite simply, are you a Christian? And he said that question needs an answer. And he very clearly laid out the way of salvation. Now, if you answered yes to that question, let me tell you that you have got so many privileges as a believer. If your answer was no, or I'm not sure, then let me tell you, you are missing out on so many privileges that God gives to you. And that's what I want us to think about today, the privileges that God gives us as Christians. But you know, when we do have privileges, privileges bring us responsibility. And we have to admit that as Christians, sometimes we fail to do the things that we should do. And sometimes our lives aren't worthy of calling ourselves Christians. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1 says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. You know, we live in the world, but as Christians, we're not of the world. We've got all the temptations, all the difficulties that surround everybody else. And at times we fail. But what did Jesus say to his disciples in that prayer? He said, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, that you protect them from the evil one. And Jesus was praying there to the Holy Spirit to protect his children. And what I want us to do today is I want us to look at an Old Testament story of somebody who had so many privileges by virtue of his birth, but he fell short. My thinking about this came as I had the opportunity recently to be studying again the prophets of Amos. 
And I've known Amos for uh, many, many years and, and the teaching in that book. And if I just say that Amos was different to a lot of the other prophets, most of the other prophets at that time were preaching to the pagan nations, the heathen nations, and calling them to repent. But Amos was different because Amos had been called to preach to the Israelites. And what Amos was saying was, you are God's chosen people. You have got so much privilege in what God has given you. But you're no different to the people around you. You are exactly like the heathen nations around you. And because you have got privileges, and because you don't live any differently to these others, you need to repent or punishment will come upon you. I've heard one writer, well, I've read one, one writer, call Amos, the book of Amos, the lion that roars. Because God was roaring at the children of Israel. You see, the children of Israel had got these privileges. Well, first of all, they were descendants from Abraham. They were children of the covenant. They'd been elected, chosen by God. He said to them, you only have I known. And Deuteronomy 10.15 says, he chose you, their descendants, above the nations. They were redeemed. They were redeemed from slavery in Egypt and brought out into the promised land. And, you know, they thought that because they had got these privileges, it gave them an automatic right to live as they chose. But God said, no, you've got these privileges and you are not going to escape the punishment of the same as the others around you because you are acting just like they are acting. You know better than they are. So I must have calling the people to repent. And, you know, as I was re-studying this part of scripture, particularly Amos chapter 3, a character from the Old Testament came straight into my mind. Someone who had got all these privileges and yet lived life no better than anybody around him. And that individual is Samson. Samson was a man who was chosen by God. He was dedicated to God from his birth. And yet... He lived so much of his life in the world. I'm sure we've all heard the stories of Samson and the miraculous, mighty things he did through the strength that he got. In fact, one commentator actually called him a miracle man with a weakness for the ladies. And that probably sums him up. <clears throat> and you know, everything we know about Samson, we read in just four chapters in the book of Judges. Judges chapters 13 to 16 cover the whole of Samson's life. But to give you a little bit of background of Samson, Samson lived at the time of the judges, and in fact, Samson was one of the judges. The time of the judges was a period in the history of Israel before they had a king, and it lasted for around 410 plus years. And there were 15 judges, and Samson was the last but one. And they were a bit of a mixed bag. Some were good, and some were not so good. But during that time, those 400 and odd years, the Israelites lived in a perpetual cycle. 
There was no ruler, so they'd fall into sin and apostasy. A judge would be raised up. The people would come back to God. The judge would die. The people fell back into sinful ways. And so the cycle went on. It was a continual cycle of sin and repentance. And often during that time, there was oppression from outside enemies and forces as well. And in Judges chapter 13, verse 1, we read that Israel again was in distress and they needed to have a deliverer raised up to save them. And God granted a child, Samson, in order that he was going to be dedicated to save Israel. Samson judged Israel for around 20 years. And during that time, the Philistines were the main oppressors. And Samson just began to fight against the Philistines. The Philistines continued for 40 more years under the reigns of Samuel, Saul, Jonathan and David. But Samson was a little bit different to some of the other judges because he didn't head up a court, didn't lead an army, he never sat on the throne and made wise decisions. He wasn't out there in the field of battle leading his men. But he was a great patriot of his country. And he was a scourge on the Philistines. And he's probably one of the most recognisable of the judges. I'm sure we've all heard of Samson. Like previous judges, he came from the tribes in the southern kingdom. And he received the anointing of the Spirit of the Lord. And this was reflected in Samson's unique strength and spectacular things that he did. And then, when Israel was in distress, the second verse of Judges 13 tells us about Samson's birth. We're told that Samson was born to a childless couple. We aren't given the woman's name. We just know his father's name was Manoah, and they were almost peasants from the tribe of Dan, which bordered the Philistine land. They came from a small town called Zorah, about 14 miles west of Jerusalem. And just like Samuel and John the Baptist and Isaac, he was a child of a barren woman. It was a miraculous birth. And an angel came to Manoah's wife and said that she would bear a child who would become a leader, a special child who was to be dedicated to God even before he was born. The angel then visited the husband and then the couple together. And this, to me, reflects the story of the angel visiting Sarah to announce the birth of Isaac and visiting Elizabeth and then Zachariah to announce the coming of John the Baptist. Just like Isaac, Samuel and John the Baptist, Samson was to be a special child given special privileges and dedicated to God even before they were born. The angel went on to tell Manoah's wife, that Samson would be a Nazarite. Now, we've all probably heard of the Nazarites. And 
they took vows, vows of dedication to God. And there were two types of Nazarites. One was a perpetual Nazarite who would be a Nazarite for life. And we only read of three of those in the Bible, those being Samson, Samuel and John the Baptist. And they were presented to God by their parents after they were specifically chosen by God. There's no specific mention of Nazarites before the time of Samson, yet there's evidence that they did exist around the time of Moses. Because if we go back into Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 to 21, we get all the rules and regulations for the Nazarites. Because the other type of Nazarite could be a voluntary Nazarite, somebody who consecrated or separated themselves to God for a specific period of time, usually between 30 and 100 days. And it could be men and women. And they were given special requirements. And at the end of their period of their vow, they would go to the um, sanctuary with three different offerings. There'd be um, a burnt offering, a sin offering, and a peace offering. They would have their hair cut off, and the hair would be burned underneath the peace offering. And we read in Acts chapter 18, verses 18, and also chapter 21, verses 23 to 26, that Paul, the Apostle Paul, for a short time, took this vow as being a Nazarite, because we read of him having his hair cut off and presented at the sanctuary. And the Nazarite vows were a symbol of a life dedicated to God. They had to abstain from all fruits of the vine. They had to touch nothing that was unclean, no dead thing, no corpse, and not cut their hair. But Samson was to be a Nazarite from his birth. And so his mother was to take some part in these laws too, because she was told that while she was carrying this child, she was not to touch wine or unclean foods. And so here we have Samson, a miracle child born to an infertile couple, set apart by God from his birth, part of the family of God, and with so many privileges from even before he was born. And yet, you know, Samson broke every rule in the book. He broke all of his Nazarite vows. He broke some of the Ten Commandments. And his life, which had promised so much, was blighted and ultimately destroyed by him living in the world rather than him being truly separated from God. And, you know, his final downfall came with Delilah. And you can read this in chapter 16 of Judges, verses 2 to 21. Because he got involved with Delilah. And Delilah had made a pact with the lords of the Philistines that she would betray Samson. They wanted to know where his strength lay. And she bartered for money and promised that she would find out the secret of his strength. And first as she lulled him in her lap, asking him to tell her the secret of his strength. He told her all sorts of things. And they tried it, it didn't work. And then he started getting closer and closer to the truth because he started to mention his hair. And he said that if you weave my hair into a loom, 
It will take away my strength. So they tried it while he was asleep, and it failed. But the next time, he told Delilah the truth, that if his hair was cut, the symbol of his strength, he would lose it. And this disclosure proved absolutely fatal. And you know, the sad thing was, and I think this is one of the saddest verses in Scripture, because it tells us in chapter 16, verse 20, he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. He knew he'd lost his strength when he got up and the Philistines overpowered him, but he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. And you see, God had gifted Samson with strength, but he lost it when Delilah betrayed him. And the Philistines subsequently blinded him, enslaved him, tortured him, made sport of him. And it was only after all of this that we read that Samson, at his weakest point, prayed to God. And when he did that, blind, being led by others, his strength returned, his hair grew, and he killed more Philistines in his death than he had done in his life. But you say, that's a fine story from the Old Testament, but how does it apply to, to us? Well, if we go to the New Testament, we're told quite clearly that if we are a child of God, we have got privileges. And that's so wonderful. And if you're a Christian today, these are the privileges that God has given to you. And if you're not a Christian, this is what you're missing out on. You see, God has chosen you. God has called you. We read in Ephesians chapter 1, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 10 says, Make your calling and election sure. And back in the Old Testament in Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5, he says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew, some versions say chose, I knew or I chose you. Before you were born, I set you apart. You know, that great preacher Spurgeon said these words, I can never cease to wonder that God has elected me. You're chosen by God. And as a, cho a, a chosen person of God, you're redeemed from your sin. Your sins are washed away. Titus chapter 2 verse 14 says, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify us for himself, a people that are his own, eager to do good. You're redeemed from sin. Galatians 3 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham back in the Old Testament might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. And you know, when we're chosen, when we're redeemed, we're adopted into God's family. And that's so wonderful. John chapter 1 verse 12 tells us, Yet all who receive him... To those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 18 says, I will be a father to you 
and you will be my sons and daughters. And there are so many more verses of scripture that tell us about how we are part of God's family. But you know, if you're part of the family, you take on responsibility within the family. Most families that I know, certainly for me and my immediate family, when we were growing up, we were given rules, we were given boundaries, and we had to stick with those rules. They were set for a very good reason. The reason was explained to us. And if we stepped outside the boundary of those rules, boy, didn't we know about it. Take this for an example, hypothetically. There's a family, and in the family, there's a young teenage lad. Now, Dad is a very, very good craftsman, a good workman, and he's got lots and lots of power tools. And the lad often spends a lot of time with Dad, looking at these tools, watching Dad work, helping him, cutting the trees down in the garden, doing all these amazing things. And Dad says to this boy, look, I know you love these tools. I know you've seen me using them but you must never, ever touch them on your own when I'm not here. And Dad goes on to explain the reasons why, the safety and all the rest of it. And then one day, the lad's got a friend round on a visit. And Mum and Dad pop out to the shops. And the friend says, your dad's got some good tools in the shed, hasn't he? Yes, says the boy. Can we go and have a look at them? Yes, says the boy. So off they go into Dad's work shed, and there they are, messing around with these power tools, switching them on, switching them off, got something like a chainsaw, and back comes Dad, stops them, takes everything off them, takes them in. Says to the boy after his friend's gone home, do you realise what you were doing? You had been told never to touch those. You totally disobeyed. And for that, you are having no access to your Xbox for the next three days. That's not fair, says the boy. We've arranged to play online tonight. My mates are waiting for me and we've got a game set up. My friend's going to be able to play. He's going to be there. His dad's not going to stop him. You're stopping me from playing. That's not fair. Was dad being fair or not? You see, the boy knew the rules. He was part of the family. He'd accepted the family rules. He'd chosen to break them. And you choose to break the rules that you've signed up for. And there are consequences. And you know, as a Christian, our lives, because of our privileges, we've almost signed up to live in a certain way, to be different to the world. And if we break those rules, just like the Israelites did, as Amos was saying, you're going to be punished because you're no different to the world around you. I want to do the Bible reading at this moment, and it's going to be from what, uh, the first epistle of John, chapter 1, sorry, chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. 1 John, chapter 3, verses 1 to 10, because this says it so much more eloquently than I can. 
How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and we know what it will be and we know what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning, because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. So you see, privilege of being in a family gives us responsibility, and much is asked of those who have been given much. You see, the price of our sin has been paid by Jesus Christ. He's paid the price for our eternal consequences of sin. And sin isn't taken lightly, but it was defeated at Calvary. Salvation is based on the cross. You can't earn it. It's freely given. But once we've received it, we need to walk as Christians. And our lives need to reflect Jesus Christ. God's children should know better than to sin. We should fear God and be responsible for our actions. We can't be complacent about it. We can't abuse the gifts and the privileges that God has given us because sin has a terrible price. And as Christians, we should look different to the world because we should reflect God's honour and God's glory. And God intended that as Christians, we should live entirely for him. I love J.B. Phillips' translation of Romans chapter 1, sorry, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, particularly verse 2. And there might be one or two of you here who recognise the words because they were actually used in a song that we used to sing many years ago. J.B. Phillips renders Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 like this. With eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, my brothers, as an act of intelligent worship to give your bodies to God as a living sacrifice, consecrated to him and acceptable by him. And this is the verse. Don't let the world around squeeze you into its own mould, but 
let God remould your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good, meets all his demands and moves towards the goal of true maturity. You see, sin is rebellion against God and it's in gratitude for his goodness to us. Sin has its consequences. For Samson, it was in the form of Delilah. I remember many, many years ago, on the first Sunday of a new year, our minister preached on Psalm 1, and it stuck with me. If you look at Psalm 1, you've got three things. Walk, stand, sit. And if you think about those things, if you're walking... We're told not to walk in the counsel of the ungodly. But if you're walking, you keep moving and you've always got a way out. If you're standing, we're told not to stand in the way of sinners. But if you're standing with somebody, particularly somebody who's not a Christian, you're a little bit more static, aren't you? A little bit more engaged in, with them. But if you're sitting with somebody... It's hard to get away. You really are with them and alongside of them. And you know, the newest thing I could come up with to think about what this could be like is, um, I don't know whether any of you have ever had the opportunity to, um, to visit a souk, maybe in North Africa or, or the Middle East or something. But I'll tell you, you've got all the merchants trying to sell you things. If you can keep on walking, you're okay. You can get away. The moment you stand, you're in the danger zone because they've got you. The moment they get you inside their little shop and you're sitting down, you're caught up with it. You can't get away from it. And if you ever get to drinking their Arabic coffee or getting trussed up in all the things that they're trying to sell, you're done up like a chicken, you can't get away unless you buy something or you're really hard-hearted and you've got the goal to get up and walk away, it's hard. You're trapped. You're caught. I've got a multitude of pashminas to prove it because <laughs> I had the easy option. But I'll tell you, that's what the Bible's saying. While you're walking, you can keep going away from the things of the world. While you're standing, you're a little bit more caught up with it. But once you're sitting with it, you're totally entrapped with it. And it's hard to get away, even as Christians. You see, sin can be forgiven. But what if it's repeated sin? If we're doing the same things over and over again, doesn't it beg the question of, am I really one of God's children? J.C. Ryle lived in the um, 1800s. He was an evangelical and he was the first Anglican Bishop of Liverpool. And he said this, the heart that has really tasted the grace of God will instinctively hate sin. And as Christians, that's what we should do. We should reflect the glory of God. You see, the Nazarites, like Samson was, they showed God's goodness in the way that they lived, in their holiness and dedication to God. I've been reading recently some of the sermons from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, particularly his studies in the Sermon on the Mount. And what he said is that we should live our lives as Christians according to the Sermon on the Mount. We find that in Matthew chapter 
5 to 7, and particularly the Beatitudes, which is in Matthew 5, verses 3 to 12. And what Martin Lloyd-Jones says is that all Christians should display all these characters, these characteristics. It's not that this one is for this person, this characteristic is for another person. He says all Christians should display all the characteristics. We might display them to different degrees. Some might have more of one, less of another, but all of those characteristics should be in every Christian and that as Christians we have to walk the straight or the narrow way. You see, the true people of God reflect the God whose people they are. I'm going to say that again. The true people of God reflect the God whose people they are. God's given us so much. As true Christians, we should reflect him. You see, Samson had privileges from God, but sin had a terrible price. The children of Israel had privileges from God, yet Amos had to call them to repentance. As Christians, we're not immune from the consequences of sin. We don't know where sin's going to end, but we do know where it begins. But it tells us in Luke 12 that we are going to be judged according to what we know. And God judges those who claim to be Christians and aren't. We're told to walk in the light. We're told that if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of truth, there's no sacrifice left for us. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his studies on the Sermon on the Mount, said this. The most vital question to ask about anyone who claims to be a Christian is this. Have they a soul thirst for God? Is their life centred on him? Do they press forward more and more? At the second coming, we're going to stand before Jesus as the judge. We're going to have to account for what we've done. We're going to be tested as a Christian. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book, Truth Unchanged, Unchanging, said this, it is just this one thing, how do we stand before God? The vital thing, the only thing that really matters is how we stand when we come face to face with God. An American theologian, R.C. Sproul, said this, the Christian life requires hard work. It's true, isn't it? Our sanctification is a process where we are co-workers with God. And I'm going to finish with one last quote from a Chinese church leader, Watchman Nee, 20th century. He said, The children of God need to yield specifically to the Lord, forsake every doubtful aspect of their life, be willing to fully obey God's will and believe through prayer that he will flood their spirit with his power. Thank you for listening and be blessed in the week ahead.